Broadsheet Radio Network. Welcome to another episode of Shared History. Bet you can't listen to just one. I bet you can't. Mostly because why would you? There's a lot. There's over a yeah. hundred now. There's there's just so much history and we can't stop talking about it. It turns out there's a lot of history. Every time we think we've caught up, there's just there's more history out there. <laughs> Not a well that's gonna run dry anytime soon. <laughs> and I'm not upset about it. Uh in fact, we've we've got an excellent guest today to talk to us about all sorts of things. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna get right to introducing our guest. Because our guest today is an author, scholar, and educator whose main area of focus examines the experiences of refugees, asylum seekers, and the internally displaced. She's consulted with a number of international organizations, including the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, and teaches in the International Comparative Studies program at the University of Michigan where she is calling in to us from now. Her recent book, Everyday War, which I know we will talk about further, explores how the military conflict in Ukraine has affected civilians and reconfigured social worlds. Please welcome to the podcast, Dr. Greta Euling. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. I uh, personally am very excited for your topic today just and just also for your kind of area of expertise because we've not talked a lot about ukrainian history on this podcast other than our episode on the holodomor which as a am i second generation uh ukrainian american uh shocks me that i mm-hmm. i make everything about chicago but i haven't made enough <laughs> things about ukraine so i'm uh i'm excited i'm excited to chat to chat ukraine yeah, well, you know, history is being made in Ukraine as we speak. So I'm really glad to be here. Yeah. Also, if there's one, if there's one thing that I know about Ukrainian history, it's just that, man, they, you know how for the last like three years we've been saying, wow, I could really go for some precedented times. I feel like that's all of Ukraine's history. <laughs> like yeah. the last like solid century of ukrainian history plus. it's like could we just could let's we just chill could we have a break please could we <laughs> have a break yeah you know the um it's funny that you mentioned that because the working title for the book before i settled on everyday war was ptsd land to express that very idea right oh. that it's like a landscape layered with loss and trauma and mm-hmm. and upheaval but of course also what goes with that is tremendous fortitude and you know innovation and creativity and all of that mm. stuff yeah well when we when we did our episode where we where we talked about holodomor we focused like the purpose part one of the reasons that i had chosen to tell that story was that not a lot of people know it and also it it's incredibly important for identifying and like recognizing a 
pattern mm. of, uh, of oppression in Ukraine. Uh, and so that was why we kind of dug into it at the time that we did a couple of years ago to just kind of raise that flag and, and raise that awareness. So I'm, uh, how did you get interested in Ukraine and Ukraine's history specifically? You know, my background is primarily Swedish, but I got very interested in European, um, in Eastern Europe through reading the literature, which just for some reason really resonated with me. And so I started studying the language and that provided an opportunity to travel there. Once I traveled there, I started to really relate to the, you know, all of the people I met um, made a big impression on me. And that was the beginning of, uh, you know, basically two books and lots of articles and some of my teaching. When did you, when did you travel? I have gone there many, many times, but Everyday War is based on research that I did in Ukraine through a Fulbright grant between the years of 2015 and 2017, I made three trips. And, you know, that's interesting because I think most people, when they think about the war in Ukraine, have etched in their mind this big transition that took place in February of 2022. Mm -hmm. But it's really been going on since 2014. And so mm -hmm. um, that's when my research there started. What part of Ukraine did you visit at that time? Or did if you went, you said you made three trips. So did you kind of, did you visit different regions each time that you went? You know, when I, uh, so in order to capture the views of like as broad a spectrum of people as possible, I traveled all across Ukraine and I went to four hubs each of the three years to speak with people about how the war was affecting them. And so I was in the north, I was in the in the east, uh, I was in the south, and I was in the west. And then in addition to these hubs, I often would travel to, you know, small villages or, you know, somebody might live sort of far out of town and I'd, I'd go with them to the place where they were living. So it wasn't just the four hubs, but primarily the four hubs all across yeah. Ukraine. And do you, you said you studied the language. Do you speak Ukrainian? I speak Russian fluently. Oh, Russian. Yes. Mm. And at the time, and I, I speak some Ukrainian, I understand mm. it very well. Yeah. Um, and at the time that I began that research in 2015, I was working primarily with people who were fleeing uh, Russian, predominantly Russian speaking areas. Yeah. And so what I did with my interviewing was I gave people a choice of the three languages that I could work best in, which mm. was Russian, Ukrainian, and English. And what people chose shifted over that three-year period. In the very beginning, they primarily chose Russian. Mm -hmm. And by the end, more people were choosing Ukrainian and English. Interesting. I was going to say, because I feel like being able to speak the language or understand that's got to affect um, just the way you're able to interview and connect with people and get mm -hmm. different testimonials from them as mm -hmm. opposed to having a translator or or something. So I'm sure that uh, 
grounded that um, those interviews and stories even more. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think that the freedom of interviewing a person privately in a quiet room mm -hmm. is, you know, a, a very unique and unparalleled opportunity that affords a more uh, personal uh, access than say a room filled with an interpreter and a camera and a TV mm -hmm. person. Yeah. So, so the, the original working title of the book, um, PTSD land, obviously you said you were there during 2015 through 2017, right? Yeah. Um, and it wasn't just everyday war going on then there's like Natalie said, and you said history of oppression. So you're peeling back a lot of layers as well as the history that's being made. What was that like? Mm, that's a great question. You know, I, the, when I first um, started the research for this particular book, uh, Crimea had been occupied with many people fleeing that area. And then the military activity had begun in the eastern parts. And so people were fleeing that. And they had a great deal in common in the sense that they were all uh, fleeing Russian aggression. However, the people that were fleeing the east were much more traumatized because they typically left with, you know, a backpack, only the clothes on their back. Yeah. And they had witnessed so much more. The people fleeing Crimea were, uh, they, they differed from the people fleeing Donbass in the sense that the occupation of Crimea had basically been bloodless. You know, it was yeah. a, a nonviolent takeover with tanks and military hardware. But because the international community in Ukraine capitulated to that that occupation so quickly, people left in fear of their lives, but they had not witnessed a lot of bloodshed in the way mm. that the people from the East had. And so they were very different groups of internally displaced. Mm. Yeah. And then, of course, as the, as the conflict has gone on, the... the um, all parts of the country have been drawn in. Uh, that's one big difference. And then the other big difference is that as, as time has progressed, Ukraine has become progressively more unified linguistically, politically, culturally around their national idea. And that too is significant because it's essentially the opposite of what the Russian leadership uh, was trying to accomplish, namely mm. the fragmentation and disintegration of, of Ukraine. So when I was there, people were a little bit more divided about what should be the course of this country? Yeah. How should we, how exactly should we seek to integrate ourselves with the European Union? Yeah. Things of that nature were more questions than positions. Something that just uh, jumped out to me. I remember it was just a, a matter of semantics um, after uh, the Russian occupation in 21 of P 
people refer to Ukraine as the Ukraine as opposed oh, to Ukraine. Oh, oh, touching on a big old Natalie pet peeve right now. <laughs> I, I, I don't even know why that is, but I remember it was like, it's Ukraine. It's not the Ukraine. And I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But I guess I don't even know why people would throw, cause they do that for like the Netherlands or whatever. I don't know. That's just something that popped out and I don't really understand it. And I would love to know more about it. Natalie seems to have opinions on it. <laughs> yeah, Natalie, I don't know if you want to jump in, but you know, I think it's the way I think about it is that that article is symptomatic of the larger problem of, of not the difficulty that people have in recognizing mm -hmm. Ukraine as a sovereign country with its own language and mm -hmm. territorial integrity uh and so they throw the 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 in there and yeah it, it grates on a lot of people's nerves and i'm i'm afraid it can take a while for it to to disappear it's and it's it's one of those things that's it's so, seemingly so small it's just a word but going into you know the kind of cult cultural not unification whatever but like how you were saying more um uh politically unified around their national idea yes yeah yes um something seemingly small like that like makes a huge deal and it mm -hmm. is does help those slow shifts towards the perception of ukraine as its own people as its own like you said sovereign natalie i know you're dying give us something I, no Greta put it perfectly because it was exactly that's it is it's an implied whether it is whether you intend it that way or not when you add that article it it implies it makes Ukraine feel like a territory and not like its own sovereignty mm -hmm. its own identity like we've been talking about and it's historically not correct anymore and hasn't been for a very long time uh Ukraine mm -hmm. has been its own sovereign nation for a very long time whether Russia has recognized it as well <laughs> or not um and it's also it just irks me from a grammar perspective because i'm like it's just wrong and <laughs> whether it's whether that's the intent or not it's similar to and what's interesting actually is so i used to go to when i was a when i was a wee child i would spend my saturdays at ukrainian school at uh at uh in in chicago rosemont technically and um i kind of grew up learning two different pronunciations of cert of certain things often because chicago is very very polish often with foods i know like the polish name for something the ukrainian name for something and also the russian name for something um and my default is that i'll often say something and then if somebody looks at me like i don't know what i'm talking about if i'm talking about a popular food i'll <laughs> just also throw the Polish in there because most Chicagoans know the Polish names. Like we know the name, we know pierogi. Uh -huh. uh, we know ponchke. We don't necessarily, the Ukrainian names for things aren't as, as uh, recognized. Uh -huh. But the, the discourse uh, over the last couple of years of correcting people on pro using the Ukrainian pronunciation of city names mm. and whatnot is something that I was like, it, I don't think I had ever fully understood why I knew two names for cities, like why I knew both pronunciations and what the difference was. I don't think that I had ever put those mm -hmm. together. Um, mm -hmm. 
so similar to the the Ukraine debate, the Kiev Kiev debate is also mm-hmm. uh, or not a debate. It's it's two different languages, but mm-hmm. that that discussion has also been interesting. So I'm like, oh, should I develop a new pet peeve? The the Ukraine thing just like immediate. It's like nails on a chalkboard for me. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm so glad I brought it up, and I'm so glad I asked that question because it is. Um, I don't know. I think words are very powerful and important, especially small ones, because small ones seem to um, get passed over really easily. And those are the ones that seem to solidify the perceptions of people or peoples or places. And so I think that stuff's fascinating. Thank you both yeah. for diving into that for me. It's a, Well, it's a good question because Ukraine faces this existential crisis. Mm-hmm. So it's a really important question. Yeah, I have I have uh, I have friends who were born in eastern Ukraine who will be like, oh, I'm they're always they're like, I'm Russian. Like I was born in Ukraine, but I'm Russian. And I'm like, it's that existential just like kind of chaos for your for the folks that you talk to who are fleeing. First of all, because of your area of study is how difficult is it is is it to kind of keep track of some of these connections that you've made as they're fleeing from the regions that maybe they're not they they're being displaced all the time so you can't just go always go back to the same spot and know that you're going to find this family that you talked to because they have maybe have had to pick up and move again how difficult does that make your process and your research Mm, well, I did two. I really did two types of interviewing. One was with like humanitarians and social workers, and professionals of uh, various backgrounds. They were very easy to relocate uh, in subsequent years or in between years, and they're people that I've kept in touch with through. Uh, WhatsApp, you know, email, to a lesser extent, Facebook, um, and some other platforms. But the other part of the interviewing was with people who had been internally displaced. And with those individuals, it was very important to maintain their anonymity and their confidentiality. Mm. And so I did not seek to keep track of their real names or their addresses or anything of that nature. They were assigned numbers from the get-go. I use pseudonyms in the book because, you know, if they had, hypothetically speaking, if they had said something, you know, pro-Russian and Ukrainians had gotten hold of my notebook or pro- mm-hmm. Ukrainian and Russians had gotten hold of my data, then it could have had unfavorable consequences for the people who spoke with me. And so I was very, very careful about uh, anonymity and confidentiality and all of the ethics that go around doing research in a, in a country that's at war. That said, sometimes interesting things would happen, like I would run into people in the grocery store two years (laughs) later, and we would catch up and get coffee and go out for pizza. And, you know, that part was very, um, 
meaningful for me to be to be to know that they were okay to hear mm. how things had progressed for them and so i think that the, the short answer is it really varied depending on who i was speaking with speaking of uh being able to use the internet to stay in contact with some of the folks on more of the humanitarian front I there I know that there were there have been media blocks in in Ukraine on and off especially in eastern Ukraine over the last couple of years and I I don't know if that would have affected like your ability to reach out to any of these people or get a hold of any of them was that a problem that you faced or was it more of just like dealing with the the free speech issue of it all of of the of not necessarily issues with internet but issues with disinformation Mm hmm. So that particular issue didn't affect me profoundly, but it did affect the people that I worked with and interviewed because those blocks meant that oftentimes they were no longer able to communicate with colleagues or fellow, um, you know, like co-workers or their school cohort in the way that they had previously if those people were in Russia. And so they were profoundly affected by their networks being bifurcated. But the internet is a creative place and new platforms have sprung up for communication and dissemination of information. Um, in addition to the ones that you're probably all already familiar with, there's a platform called Telegram that a lot of people use for sharing information and updates about what they're doing. So there's a lot of ways to communicate um, and it's a continually shifting landscape to, to respond to uh, the things that are, are going on with the war. It's interesting how social media has um, played a part in uh, displacement, refugees, war in general, and it seems so new, you know, like, uh, pleas from people on social media of like, hey, our city's getting bombed, you know, like, I, I feel like I see that a lot. Um, and they'll live stream everything, or all of this stuff on Twitter. Um, or even just like in a local protest. Yeah. Around, like using the citizen app or whatnot during a local protest. Yeah, and it, it seems wild and it seems so new, but I mean, media has always played such a huge part in in protesting in wars. Um, there's been a lot in the media recently about Emmett Till and posting photos during the civil rights movement was kind of what really started kick, kicking it off. Um, have you delved into that social media aspect of things or at all with any of your interviews? I'm curious. Mm. Well, I think that the way in which it's the most important for my book is that the war in Ukraine is very much what, what's been called like a hybrid war or a new war in which it's being fought as much by shaping how people think mm -hmm. as it is by, through weaponry. So misinformation, disinformation uh, are a crucial part of gaining control of territory and maintaining control of that territory. 
And the way that that showed up in my research was through perceptions of the people that inhabited the Russian mediascape as being somehow zombified or hypnotized by the material that they had access to. And this was especially clear near the border with Russia in like Slovyansk and um, Kramatorsk cities where you could hear the conflict going on across the border, but it was, it was safe um, for the people who lived there, but it was easy to go back. And what they talked about a lot in Slovyansk and Kramatorsk was the sense that their families and friends on the other side of the border who did not have access to Ukrainian state media or really Ukrainian media of any kind had, from their perspective at least, lost their ability to think critically. And so they use this term zombification. And mm. it's important in the book because one of the things that I, that I chart is like the very beginnings of people um, that sided with Ukraine and that sided with Russia beginning to view one another as very, very different, mm. right? So I talk about this also as like sort of a, a practical form of Orientalism. If Orientalism is usually about sort of creating mythologies around social differences, the, what that looked like in Ukraine was Ukrainians and Russians both coming to the conclusion that they were indeed very, very different people. And in fact, the the Russians that were under the effects of what they referred to as zombification were less civilized, now less intelligent, now in need of being spoken to in a somewhat different way, even if they were family members. Sounds a lot like the United States right now at times. Interesting. <laughs> Uh, I, a great opportunity rather than burying this at the end to point out to our listeners that in the show notes, I will include, I mean, we're going to start including this all the time. I, we, because I don't know why I haven't, there will be a link. We actually have a, um, a wish list of sorts on bookshop.org. We have a list, uh, a kind of a reading list of things that books that either guess we've had guest authors on or that we've recommended on the podcast so you can find a link an uh, uh you can you can purchase everyday war through that bookshop.org link i'll probably make an amazon list for it too but it'll hurt my soul to do it so but some <laughs> some of the books that we've talked about on the podcast aren't uh available elsewhere so for you can now, get it directly at cornell university press do it There'll be a link. There'll be a direct yeah. press link there too. Yeah. Um, Cass, Take that, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> Cass, I'm really glad that you mentioned that connection to the ways in which families and friendships are affected by the political divisions in the United States because there's a, a parallel development in Ukraine at a at a much higher level of magnitude. Mm -hmm. One of the things I talk about in the book, and in, in fact, part of the definition of what I even mean by everyday war is that the majority of people that I interviewed 
who had been displaced from Donbass. So 67% uh, lamented the loss of friendships and new tensions arising in their family relationships. Mm -hmm. So I talk about this as a form of everyday war because as one woman put it, people became like bombs. A single word could make somebody explode, metaphorically speaking. And for her, you know, these decades long friendships unraveled very quickly when people had opposing uh, political views. And so, you know, what I mean by everyday war is partly the disruption to personal relationships that happened as a result of war and the ways in which these friendships and parent relationships, romantic relationships took on fault lines and they became like microcosms of the larger war that was being waged all around them. And then there's this second dimension in addition to relationships, which has to do with the very conscious and creative ways that people engaged the conflict mm -hmm. and participated in the conflict. Um, it's very much like a pragmatic and self-defensive stance that's intended to maintain a livable world. Mm -hmm. uh, people did things like, mm, well, perhaps you've heard the news reports of like making Molotov cocktails and or dismantling Russian road signs so that mm -hmm. Russian invading forces are disoriented, mm -hmm. weaving camouflage nets. But even before those activities started, what I describe in the book is things like uh, my friend Alexandra's provisioning of her father. Her father, you know, she fled the war in Donbass because of shelling. Her family sought safety and found it. And then her father decided to go back as a volunteer fighter and be a sniper. The problem was he didn't have any of the equipment that he needed. And so instead of studying at the university, Alexandra took it upon herself to raise funds so that she could purchase him the things he needed to be a good sniper. She knew full well that the people he would be shooting were former neighbors and friends. And I, and I refer to this as everyday war in the book because kinship had become something that was also very tactical. It wasn't just kinship. Mm -hmm. And so what we see in Ukraine today is, you know, as President Zelensky put it, every Ukrainian is a warrior. Um, and so there are these two dimensions to everyday war. On one hand, it has to do with the way that personal relationships acquired these fault lines. And on the other hand, it has to do with the way people rose to that challenge and really engaged and began thinking very creatively and consciously about how they might defend their country. Yeah. That's heavy. Wow. <laughs> yeah. We, we talk a lot on the podcast about and oftentimes uh, guests of ours who are not academics will uh, wax poetic about why they didn't care for history uh, or the social studies in school. And one of the things that we often come back to is this discussion of war specifically as 
being just dates and places and not being focused on these everyday things, these mm -hmm. social groups, these, this kinship, all like social media, all of these things that when disrupted, disrupt people's entire lives, individual people's entire lives, communities' lives, and that they're, they are a part of war and they're casualties of war that we don't talk about when we have like a century of hindsight and that's not what we tend to focus on in our in our history books when we're trying to cover it in like a multi-decade war or yeah we're trying to cover all of world war ii in like two weeks uh so it's it's fascinating to me mm -hmm. I, that 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 is what you've kind of really focused in on especially mm -hmm. in this war in ukraine of how well, the disruption to individuals and their everyday lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're totally speaking my language as an anthropologist. What you just encapsulated is is wh basically why I became an anthropologist, which is that as an anthropologist, I get to learn uh, from people's stories and my own experiences in a culture and experiences in a place are so important because they create sort of like this situated knowledge from which to understand what's going on. And I, you know, I think it's, um, well, I could tell you a little bit about the cover of the book because, you know, the, uh, the images that, that flow across television and, and computer screens are, are painfully familiar. Um, many of them are concerned with residences that have had destroyed walls or ceilings and the optic is from the outside looking in. By contrast, the image on the cover of the book, which shows the interior of an apartment and then a view out the window of that interior, um, mm. this image is really um, a metaphor for what I try to do in the book, which is provide a view from within through the stories that I was told. Mm -hmm. and, and, and what the view from within revealed was what I just mentioned, uh, namely war affects personal lives and personal relationships. And this Russian invasion of Ukraine is undoubtedly a humanitarian crisis, a military crisis, a geopolitical crisis but it's accompanied by a relational crisis. And we need to keep all of those layers in focus, I think, mm -hmm. to really understand what is going on and what it will mean in the future. Because, uh, you know, as my friend Carrillo put it, children in Ukraine today grow up knowing the millimeters of ordinance before they know the alphabet. Mm. Wow. Offline, you and I had, uh, you had talked briefly about, and I think it's relevant just to, if we're talking about relationships and communicating and also going back to what Cass's question about kind of social media and the discussion of, of media in general, you had mentioned uh, to me offline the role that humor has played in the war in Ukraine. And I, I, I use that as a 
opportunity to tee off that discussion here because I think it is uh, really interesting. And of, of course, President Zelensky is a former comedian. <laughs> uh, he is he is of our ilk. Um, so I think that that's uh, an interesting area of conversation. Also talking about like kind of that everyday aspect of of still finding the humor and still using that as a way to communicate. Do you want to talk more about that? I do. I do. I would love to. I mean, his story is so entertaining. Of course, he's a comedian by training. He becomes um, the president of Ukraine after starring in a sitcom in which he plays a high school teacher that becomes president. And so people could already visualize him as a president they're from like, watching a sitcom. Yeah, they're like, How perfect is that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's so perfect. That's life, art imitating life or life, life imitating art. <laughs> a little bit of both. Yeah, but he's also, I mean, he's very pithy and he's very ironic and sarcastic and he uses humor every single day mm. um at one point i think he said you know all my life i i did all i could so that ukrainians laugh and my job now is about making it so that they don't they don't at least don't cry anymore yeah but you know you mentioned humor and i and uh for ukrainians humor is a proven way to get through crisis to get through trauma and you know, even during shelling, stand-up comedians gather large local audiences in bomb shelters and crack jokes to distract the people that are in those shelters from what's going on outside. And it's also, you know, something that I follow quite a bit is um, memes because they, it's the memes provide a hidden transcript for understanding Ukrainian culture and resilience. You know, like mm. what do watermelons, leopard print, Shiba Inu dogs, you name it, have in common? They're all these fascinating memes that enable us to unlock and uncover these layers of the Ukrainian response to Russian aggression. So like watermelons, watermelons, that seems kind of random. Well, actually, watermelons are the symbol of the city of Kherson, which was occupied um, and, by Russian forces. And that area produces some of the sweetest, del most delicious watermelons on the planet, in my personal and completely biased opinion. <laughs> um, and so it became a symbol of the Ukrainian counteroffensive, right? So a way to talk about the Ukrainian counteroffensive to regain Kyrgyzstan was pictures of watermelons, drawings of watermelons, you gotta take slices of watermelon. watermelon, eating watermelon. Um, and that brings us to um, like, so, oh, so when the Russian military announced that it was retreating from that city, raccoons became the meme well that seems really weird raccoons um the reason that raccoons became a prevalent meme was that the retreating russian forces stole a raccoon from a zoo and weird priority 
I know, we're the priority. <laughs> oh, we're training, quick. You, get the gear. You, get the raccoon. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But, you know, as it was unraveled in Ukrainian media or social media, they could joke that, you know, the raccoon was the only strategically important object that the Russians had managed <laughs> to capture, right? And then, so like on the topic of animals, animals are all over the place on Ukrainian social media. Um, we could start with cats, soldiers post with cats uh, pretty much everywhere. And I think what the pictures of mm, these very gentle pets and these uh, soldiers with these tiny creatures cradled in their arms indexes for us is the fact that Ukrainians haven't lost their humanity. In fact, they've they've retained it. Mm -hmm. By the same token, uh, there's been a lot of footage of, of what Rush, retreating Russian forces have, have done to uh, people's pet dogs. Mm -hmm. And so by the same token, you know, you'll see a lot of posts about shelters, feeding stations, water stations, rescues that are established by Ukrainians as a way of marking their humanity, marking their civilizational sort of, it's a rebuke to the allegations that you Ukraine is somehow less civilized mm. than Russia, right? Which mm -hmm. has been which has been a Russian argument for decades. Yes, exactly, exactly. So yeah. these memes are part of the 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 pushback against that. Um, another really interesting one is tractors. So you might remember that tractors in that very 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 initial phase of the twenty twenty two invasion start rolling towards kiev and some of them run out of gas which is funny all by itself <laughs> then uh ukrainian farmers get their tractors and start pulling these tanks out of the way and so ukrainians at that point like to joke that you know the you know one of the most powerful armies in the world uh, lost military equipment to Ukrainian farmers. Um, and, and this was then all commemorated in a, in a postage stamp that is very popular. And then that becomes, you know, you can imagine that with each iconic image, whether it's a cat or a tractor or a raccoon or a watermelon, it becomes infinitely iterated, mm -hmm. modified, adapted, new slogans are added. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that that's important because it shows us that, um, well, first of all, it shows us that the news media on the horrors of the invasion are only part of the story. The other part of the story is these images and texts and memes that contest Russian aggression and assert Ukrainian victory 
but also it's significant for Ukrainian culture because it's become such a fertile time for Ukrainian culture. Some of my colleagues are working on the explosion in the world of art, of new work, poetry, new work, literature, new work. And so I think that the robust cultural response helps unify Ukraine at a time when a significant portion of the territory is occupied, a significant portion of the population is displaced either within the country or to other countries, and the entire country is under such an existential threat. And so I find it, I find these memes refreshing, and I, and I think that the humor is a really important component of working, th working with and coping with the threat posed by Russian aggression. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, you mentioned it as, you mentioned it as a tool to also demonstrate to the world and also to Russia, the humanity of Ukrainians, but also, yeah, just that coping mechanism that like every day, like reminding yourself that you are human and taking a minute to laugh at a meme is a just human experience, regardless of what is what is going on in your life to like have that moment of just being a human being with a sense of humor. Absolutely. And so much of it is so irreverent. Another image that or that ended up on a postage stamp was stamps, man. What, it was a soldier giving the finger to Russian forces, right? It was like this Snake Island standoff. There's a few yeah. soldiers on this teeny tiny island. The Russians say, surrender or you're going to be killed. And the bravery of the soldiers that were on that little piece of land really galvanized the country and showed the country like how powerfully irreverent and resilient and disrespectful towards like the Russian authorities they mm -hmm. they were you yeah. know giving the finger and that ended up on an official Ukrainian stamp I Our love it boring as somebody <laughs> a lot of mail I our stamps we got nothing on this I love this I, I, it seemed, again, it seems silly, like, oh, memes, like people can write those off so easily, but there's always been some form of meme throughout history of, you know, you know, in Rome, people would graffiti, I don't know, funny, silly stuff against other politicians. And that's always happened. It's just, this is the modern day version of it, but it's, it's community building and it's comforting, like the popular american meme of the what is it the dog sitting surrounded by fire oh, this casually drinking coffee everything's fine this is fine and and you can put that for anything it could be like it's oh a it's a monday or you know like there's a inland hurricane in iowa this is fine like you could put any topic there and it's universal it can be used by both sides it can be used by whoever 
But there is something comforting about like, oh my god, I know that. And this very seemingly niche specific issue that's bothering me, someone else connects with that too. Mm -hmm. um, and I, mean, I never would have thought of it. It becomes a vocabulary for communicating symbolically in mm -hmm. a way that's like a shorthand. So instead of reading a long article, once something which starts which no one trending, can do anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, once something starts trending, people know what's happening, whether it's the leopard print, right, which was about people people posed hundreds and hundreds of pictures of themselves in leopard print clothing, which you would not get unless you knew that in the European Union at the same time there was a very significant discussion about whether or not to send leopard tanks to Ukraine. And so without necessarily talking about the specifics of the debate in Europe about these tanks, you could index your support for the sending of tanks by posting a selfie in leopard print clothing. Oh my gosh. And, it, and that goes back to the creativity of just like, I mean, war always produces great art, great creativity, but levity as well, you know? Mm -hmm. That's, I love it. Uh, yeah, art and humor is what keeps us sane. It's, I, I yeah. didn't think about Which it. sucks I... that sometimes it takes war to get the best. Some of the greatest art has been produced during the worst times. Well, That's why I always want Adele's heart to be broken, because I know we're going to get a great album from her. <laughs> yeah, and that's why I want all of my favorite. But I also want great things from her. I want all my favorite comedians to just be perpetually clinically depressed, because that's when we get the best material. <laughs> <laughs> I... I didn't even think about this. I you mentioned the cats thing. I literally just the other day on TikTok just was enraptured watching a kind of like time lapse. It was like a DIY project video, but it was a Ukrainian soldier who was building basically a little cat flap in the barracks for this cat that they had just was a regular visitor and they wanted it to make it easier for him to be able to come and go on his own time and it was very much framed like your traditional, just like, I decided to build this bookcase, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like, it was a perfect parody of that. Uh huh. But it was, it was a Ukrainian soldier building, installing uh, out of just debris and like detritus of, of war around him just oh okay well there's a shingle over here and some scrap wood over here and just assembling this makeshift cat flap for just this friendly stray that the barracks had adopted and i i didn't even think about it until you uh you just mentioned that work so if people want to find out more about my work um they can go to my website which is gretaeuling.com I'm also on Instagram at greta.euling. As we already mentioned, if they're interested in buying the book, they can find it pretty much anywhere books are sold, but Cornell University Press, they just type in my last name and it pops up. And then what else? I'm on Twitter at uh, euling, umish, ed1, which is kind of long, so maybe put it in the notes.
I will put all of this in the notes, all of this and some wonderful visual aids as always in the notes and also on our website, sharedhistorypodcast.com and on our Instagram at sharedpod. I have to ask, just because you mentioned that your area of study or focus before was Sweden, why Sweden? Oh, I'm of Swedish descent. Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is what I was going to say. All this talk about the sense of humor and like just the the humor and comedy of Ukrainians just really (laughs) diametrically opposed with photos of my grandmother and her side of the family of just like my 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 Bobby just always stone-faced but if you needed to play against uh like if you needed a straight man if you needed somebody to give you a withering stare with perfect comedic timing (laughs) was always good for that but yeah it just I was just mildly amused thinking of the sense of humor of Ukrainians and then connecting that to all of the black and white photos of uh-huh. my grandparents never <laughs> smiling. We used, to, we used to do jokes with my grandmother whenever we went through the photo albums of being like, what happened before this photo was taken? <laughs> oh, we had a great party. Like, you look miserable. Oh, no, great day. It's just like, all right, I believe you. Going back to Zelensky being a comedian and then becoming president and then taking over at a major, again, existential crossroads for Ukraine, uh, from at least the media that I've seen, really stepped up and really, you know, we kind of discount comedians as, you know, we can't take them seriously. Uh, They don't know how to do anything except make jokes, but people really rallied behind him and he was i remember he wasn't gonna you know leave the capital and he was wearing body armor and um were you or do you think some of uh the ukraine people a little surprised by that like maybe not sure if they could take him seriously or did you notice anything about that maybe transformation from comedian to um commander in chief mm-hmm. you know i think like all elected officials opinions were divided when he was first elected some people favored a different candidate mm-hmm. and among his first activities there were many many instances in which he went out of his way to reach out to people at a very human level and connect. Mm -hmm. He's also a very poised person, very well-educated and well-spoken. And I think that that in combination with his bravery and intelligence has enabled people to rally behind him, as you mentioned. The other thing that's going on, however, that's important to keep in mind is that in under previous administrations and for a great deal of Soviet history in particular, people tended to view themselves as being like 
not like there's a sense that people are people and people need to rally together because the government isn't going to take care of them. Mm -hmm. The government is this entity that may or may not have their true interests at heart that may or may not fulfill its obligations towards the, the citizens. And therefore, there was a great deal of distrust for government entities in, U in Ukraine before Zelensky's presidency. And that's a shift that's been noted by um, many, many Ukrainian scholars and, and dignitaries that there's less of a divide between people in the government and society as a whole. And I think mm -hmm. that too is an important ingredient in why Ukraine's response has been so robust. Yeah. I did very much, I do very much get the feeling that he is a servant for the people, um, which is what, uh, I don't know, in, in America, we're taught that's what government is. We maybe don't see it all the time, but that's a good point you make that throughout Soviet history and a lot of maybe just Eastern European history, the government was someone maybe you had to just deal with regardless. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that is an interesting shift. And I, I, and, you know, media and perception is, is all part of the game anymore, but it very much does seem that that is the message they're putting out and that's a message that he's backing up as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and you mentioned A Servant of the People. That's the name of the TV show. Is really? It? <laughs> yeah. Stop it! No, uh, uh, life uh, imitates uh, art. That's uh, uh. just knocking it out of the park there. That's wild. What was the tagline for the show? Was that his presidential campaign? <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, Cassie, you can cut this out, but I just discovered this and I just want you to know this. Um, Zelensky voiced Paddington Bear in the Ukrainian dubbing of Paddington and Paddington 2. Stop oh, it. Don't cut it out because Paddington 2 and Paddington but Pad are both some of the two of the best movies of all time uh, you know what i'm shocked to find out that paddington bear and paddington bear 2 are like phenomenal movies i remember people movies. being like i was shocked i was like thought that was a joke and everyone's like no like seriously like great film like <laughs> when you use the word film and not movie you know you know it's good paddington is good and paddington 2 is perfect uh some of <laughs> work anyway it's not about it's not, not it's not about brandon gleason greta thank you so much for for joining us uh for bestowing your your wisdom upon us if uh everyone we've already told you i'm gonna tell you again in in the show notes there are links to everything you could want and more we hope that you enjoyed this episode greta do you have something that you've discovered recently like Cass just discovered the title of of zelensky's tv show <laughs> You know, I recently, so I have a tremendous amount of nostalgia for Eastern Europe, and I recently discovered a store in my town that's called Euro Market. It's very nondescript, tiny little store, but it has 
all of these products from Eastern Europe that I used to eat when I was in Ukraine and Uzbekistan and Moldova and, uh, you know, throughout all of my travels. And so I go in there and then I just go, ooh, because I That's see phenomenal. the same exact brands from the region and i just love it i've been telling all my friends about it good spread the good word because people yes. need to know where they can get european snacks they're That's right european and asian snacks are just some of the they best they seem so wild compared to like like seeing candy from a different country in general is just so i don't know why it's so funny it's so weird mm -hmm. um treasure that yeah. forever <laughs> there are certain there are certain things that i will go out of my my way if i know that i'm by like a a, a an international market i'll be like beeline it to the snack aisle because there are certain things i'm looking to see if they have so ah <laughs> oh, such a good discovery a tasty delicious discovery uh as always we already told you everything at shared pod on instagram sometimes on twitter we are on Mastodon. I'll put a link to that because that's the easiest way to do it down in the show notes. Listeners, we love you and we like you. Please leave us a rating and review on... You can do ratings on Spotify now. I just... <gasps> what? Because we have a five-star rating on Spotify. Thank you, listeners, who discovered... Keep that, that. average up. Uh, so li leave us a rating and review on Spotify. I don't think you can do reviews, but also as always on Apple podcasts, I'll say it, I'll say it again. Anything over four stars will do. <laughs> we'll take those. Thank you. Thank you once again to, Oh, it's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, check out everyday war. I have already added it to my personal list as well. And uh, until next time, share, share you later. Broadsheet Radio Network.